What's up, everybody? Welcome to Wake the Fake Up. I'm so excited to share my guest, Mark Groves. Mark Groves is the founder of Create the Love, and we went into the exploration of mind, body, and heart, and how relationships can dictate our future and how we can unravel the love codes. And it was a really, really powerful conversation that I had with him. I can't wait for you guys to deep dive in it. Wake the, the fake, fake up. up. <laughs> so good it is good all right exciting day we got mark groves in the house literally literally in the house thanks for making your way all the way down to southern california i mean that's a pretty easy request (laughs) you know when you're coming from the winter yeah it's like hey do you want to come to california and talk about cool shit about love yeah let's do it of course summer in the summer of Southern California, this is this is pretty much summer for us in in all seasons here. And, yeah, it's um, ridiculous. I, I enjoy the the crisp weather. It sparks the mind, sparks the heart. And um, you know, you and I had a nice conversation online. Yeah, we did. And I'm always getting messages about that conversation. And we really explored the psyche. We explored the heart. We explored the fundamental truths of what we're dealing with today mm-hmm. on a, you know, I would say inward level and outward level. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your background and what sparked your interest to go into this field of helping people figure out, figuring out who they are and their expression of love and how they honor relationships and by honoring relationships, honoring themselves. Yeah. You know, I didn't know when, I began the journey of teaching relationship that, you know, ultimately what I see now is that relationships are, in my view at least, the most potent vehicle for liberation, for growth, for expansion. You know, like every challenge we have relationally is an invitation to, to change, to, you know, all the frictions we hit. Is it because you're being called out and you're you're seeing how your actions and your energy is affecting someone? Yeah, like you get to see in real time that. And I think love, much like when we hit sort of a rock bottom in health too, but love I think is the most frequent experienced rock bottom. Like it's the most, and and it might matter to us enough, both on an unconscious biological level, but also on a conscious level it might matter to us enough that we're actually willing to change, that we're actually willing to do the work, that we're actually willing to heal. And um, it started, so I've always, I guess as like a teenager, I always identified as being someone who like loved love. My brother used to say that to me, you love love. And I hated having to, like internally I was like, I do love love. But you know, as a brother, I'm like, fuck that, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but my nickname, he nicknamed me as a kid. He called me Sensitor, as if I was like a sensitive dinosaur. <laughs> that would have been my name. That's your new um, nickname. That's, okay. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. You know, before I used to be sort of ashamed of that sensitivity, mm. especially, you know, in the framework of how we socialize men. Sure. Um, that Is that was, in your household or just culturally in where you grew up or just the identification of what we thought was masculine? Yeah, like a bit of all of that. I was really blessed, though, growing up. My father, very introspective. Uh, if I was going through heartbreak or uh, challenges in my relationship, he's the one I talked to about it. So we'd often sit on the couch like this and he'd ask me questions. And, and you know, that I consider that such a blessing because not many men get to experience that with their fathers, especially in our uh, generation. Yeah. So, 
yeah, I, I really always loved love. And um, when I was in university, I went into sales. I worked in an electronics store that was like uh, Best Buy. It was called Future Shop. And uh, it was kind of like the 40-year-old virgin. You know, like everyone wore suits. We sold extended warranties. And uh, I, I loved human behavior. I loved understanding how to influence human behavior from a sales perspective, sure. how to manipulate right. human behavior. And then in my... Find an emotional situation yeah. for them to want to buy. Exactly. Yeah. Like all change of behavior is really emotional. That's right. So studying that, was I was obsessed with it. And then I went through a breakup in my late 20s. And, uh, you know, I was kind of living the life I was taught. I had a good job. I was going to be a valuable provider. I was working in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, perceptionally, that's a good job. I... Um, I was engaged to a woman that I went to university with for, for, you know, we were engaged, we were together five years. I was 27. And so I was like right on the, like get married by 27 to 30, have kids by whenever. And when I got engaged, I met a moment that I'd always been taught to want. And I'd had anxieties about it and fears. And uh, I didn't want it. And I didn't know why I didn't want to be engaged. And when I got engaged, I was like, I think I'm supposed to be more excited than this. Mm. So I went on to like, which is what a lot of people deal with both men and women. Yeah. Right. Because we're projected on what it's supposed to feel like, what it's supposed to look like. And when you're on the edge, you're like, wait a second, is this what my life has come down to? Yeah. And I think that's a question thing? we yeah. all face, right? Like yeah. work wise, relationally, who you make yourself to be to the world. Right. I think that really is one of those initiatory or initiating questions that we ask is like, is there more to life? Right. I feel like there's more to this. I feel like I should be happier. And often we just like turn towards a numbing culture and it's pretty normal, right? Like it's normalized to see people settling with their life. It's normalized to see people sort of acquiesce to the, or, or like suffer through circumstances rather than change them. And, you know, think of like all of that is monetizable. Yeah. Right, there's, completely monetized. Right, there's drugs for it. There's everything. Escapism, pornography. Yeah, materialism. Alcohol, materialism, yeah. Yeah, so... Help fill the void. Exactly, like the space between what you're actually being called towards and who you're currently being and choosing uh, and what you're choosing in your life. So I started to study relationships. I went through the breakup, the ending of that engagement, which was such a gift. And she was incredible. That was the hard part too, is like, I didn't want to be with this incredible woman. That was hard for me to reconcile. Uh, so I started to study relationships. My obsession went from how to manipulate human behavior to how to understand my own. And um, I went back to school, studied positive psychology and studied, why do people stay together? Why do they not? Why are some people happy and stay together? Why do people stay together and hate each other? Mm -hmm. And we celebrate that. Right. And uh, I just felt like, no one was telling the truth about relationships, like that they end, that they're hard. And why didn't I get a fucking class in school on that? Like, the, I would argue the most important skill set that will have the most significant impact on your health is the thing that we do not teach. Right. Happy wife, happy life. Right. Yeah. Happy spouse, happy house. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And those are foundational quotes and bear a lot of truth. And yeah. so what do you think it is? You think it's, it's a taboo. You think it's a big business model. You think it's 
just people are scared to open up those channels and get uncomfortable, just like anything else, any other hot topic that we seem to have bury under the rug and not want to think about? Yeah, you know, it's probably a bit of all of that. Okay. Like it feels like systems that just sort of feed each other that we don't unconscious, maybe consciously for some people, but it feels like it's all monetizable. Right. You know, and so businesses are created to, for divorce. Businesses are created for marriage. You know, but like marriage, the origin of marriage is it was to create more in-laws. Like Stephanie Kuntz, who's a marriage historian, she wrote a book called The Marriage of History. And in it, she talks about like, ultimately it was to have a safer space to roam on. It was like, you know, at one point, rich people married rich people and poor people married poor people like that. It was to hold social hierarchies. That's right. You know, and it, to trade resources. You know, you married like the daughter from the tribe next door. So it's almost like Freemasonry. The yeah. idea of Freemasonry, which is that we we're going to build strength by numbers and we're going to bring our resources to the table. You bring your resource and we can share it. And we can all kind of profit from our ability to expand upon what we, what we came here to offer. That makes a lot of sense. Right. It's not really working out today in that fashion. It's almost no. the opposite. It's almost like the legalese has gotten in the way of that and modern culture has actually, you know, boosted the, the cheating and the, all the drama that comes with it. It's like that's what's being sold today. So true. It's all being amplified. And, you know, I feel like it's, we have modern desires from our relationships, but we have old world skills that were not designed to have greater depth or to heal. They were designed, for the most part, they were designed to just keep, stay together. So the family stayed together, so the kids got raised. And, you know, and you see that from just generate, one generation back. And, but very true today, you'll see people stay together for the kids. I'm like, well, if you're going to stay, do something. And if you're going to leave, do something. Like, staying in ambivalence just teaches them to stay in ambivalence. Yeah. You know, so. And the kids feel know. it. I felt it as a Huge. child. I, I, I had that with my family to a certain degree. Um, and so I was, I was that kid that was like, what are you guys doing? You know, right. like, I want you both to be happy. You know, there's, there's the energy is that of, you know, constant confrontation and misery and anger and frustration. And the theme is settling out throughout the whole house. Just separate because both of you guys by yourselves are fantastic. But together, this isn't the combo. And I, and I think culturally, you know, having Iranian parents, yeah. divorce is a big, big no-no. Right. It's almost like a disgrace. And they're, dis they're, they're shitting on the kids and this and that. When the whole time, you know, my sister and, my, and, my, and me were just like, come on, guys, let's, let's figure this one out. So that's interesting that this is part of the collective unfolding that people are so scared to take the next step. I think there's also a little bit of dependency there. Right. Mm -hmm. We've also built systems of relationships and modeling that are so locked in that people cannot break free of that and feel like they can go and live a happy life and take care of themselves. And then you throw in the finances, it just throws a whole nother wrench right. into the whole thing. Would you agree? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, now, I mean, even just to live, most relationships require two earners. Yeah. Right. And uh, you just look back one generation again true today that financial dependence in a relationship is also makes it almost impossible to be liberated in the relationship you know there's a 
psychologist named Harriet Lerner who says that if you're not free to leave a relationship, like able to survive if you were to leave, you actually won't feel free to be yourself in that relationship because if you telling the truth means the relationship might end, it's actually correlated to your survival, wow. right? So I think we all on at least an unconscious level till it shows up in our relational patterns, till it shows up where we can no longer keep up the facade and we need to take the mask off because we don't have a choice because our health gets impacted. And, you know, you see like so much correlation to autoimmune, any form of inflammatory responses, which I mean, is disease correlated to codependency, correlated to trauma, correlated to hiding your voice, not telling the truth, telling, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that I think is pretty obvious to us when we are in it, Absolutely. like when we're out of it, in hindsight, we're like, oh, you leave that relationship, all of a sudden your autoimmune flare is gone or, you know, and it's, it makes so much sense. Yeah. And you know that, like in your work, that's... You know, everything you just said was spot on. So if you're hearing us right now, you know, the internal struggle, struggle of leading towards dis-ease begins with something, usually it's autoimmune and then goes into other pathologies. But that internal stress of not feeling free, feeling trapped, and you can't breathe, and your survival is based on X, Y, Z, right. that right there is shutting you down on an epigenetic level, and you're going south. And they've tracked this. They've tracked this with understanding adrenal fatigue, understanding you know gut dysbiosis, understanding the gut-brain access, heart arrhythmia. I can go on and on. Stress constantly being put into fear, flight flight where you're like, okay, how, how am I going to get out of this situation? So it's not just spousal abuse. It's just an internal abuse, self-abuse. Yeah. And that, um, that gets passed on and gets passed on to the children. Totally. The children pass it on. I almost feel like we're generation lost and we're just kind of looping a lot of these karmas. Would you agree? Or these forms of consciousness. I, and also how do we break free of it? You know, is it starting in the, in, as a child development? Is there something someone can do right now that is about to enter into a new relationship? How are they going to approach that relationship? Is it just about a matter of doing the work yourself and then attracting like, because like attracts like? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's interesting because if you're in a relationship to all of a sudden wake up to the patterns, right? Like you were saying that if you witness, let's say you witness your mom not use her voice and doesn't leave your dad because of cultural reasons, because of all that, there's so much momentum. Mine was the opposite. The dad leaves the mom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so in that case, same, similar thing. Yeah. So you like, it, it, there could be so many reasons that we stay and none of that's to be shamed because we all have different cultural momentum. We all have different needs, different survival. There's true survival needs, Yeah. right? But let's say we witness that in our parent often we'll find ourselves unconsciously either very outspoken because we never want to experience what they experienced or in the same trap of silence. So there's not a balance, right? And you know, when they talk about how his, they used to say that anxiety, depression is inherited because of chemical imbalances, which we know is total bullshit now, especially, but we've known that for a long time. That's yeah. marketing from pharma. Yeah. But what is inherited is patterns patterns that create states, right? And you were talking about the inflammatory, like leaky gut. Leaky gut, in studies looking at high conflict couples, there is a higher level of leaky gut, which of course leads to inflammation. In, uh, we know digestive issues correlated to being in 
dysregulated states. Like your gut is not interested in digestion when it thinks you're going to die, even though you're just literally sitting beside someone. That's right. That you don't feel psychologically safe. That's right. You know, so the, the how do we begin to explore it? Well, you know, like in, in relationship for me, what I believe is the ultimate commitment is actually a commitment to truth. And truth has to actually come ahead of everything. Because all the things that are true, that are actually going on, which can just be in our own individual experience, right? Yeah. Like it could be the truth that I don't always tell the truth. I don't use my voice. I don't have good boundaries. You know, all those things, all those realities that I'm afraid to accept because if I accept them, then I'm going to be required to do something. Right. And humans will stay in familiar suffering over moving into unfamiliar circumstances. Yeah, the internal psychosis right. will want to stay in that comfort zone. Okay, so then, so then what, what do we do? We go drink ayahuasca? We, we, <laughs> right. We, you know, what it is. I mean, you, we got to have those, those situations in life where things hit the head or we hit rock right. bottom or there's some kind of collapse or there's a cataclysmic event within the family. Those are the moments that, that, that shake you up and say, wait a second, what the hell am I doing? Right. You know, and I think, you know, a lot of people can look back at the, their past relationships and they can see where they were, you know, vampiric in their energy mm -hmm. and where they were, they were sucking the person dry or, you know, not coming to the situation with compromise. Right. Right. Um, Initially, two people just have to be completely honest with themselves, right? Right, internally and then outwardly. At that point, we they're then given a space where we can figure out how we evolve together, and what works for me, what works for you, and how flexible we are in the relationship as well. Like instead of being into this rigid concept of what marriage or relationship is supposed to be. Maybe we're progressive in certain areas and certain concepts right. and we can work on those things together. And you're starting to see that more and more. What's your take on the evolution of these relationships? Are you old fashioned in every aspect or do you find that there could be flexibility in a relationship, more openness, um, less, you know, attachment, if you will, are these things possible or are they just sound good? I think they sound good. I mean, I, I think biologically, I mean, it's not even what I think is true, is that we are wired for attachment. So we're wired like constantly in any relationship, but especially a romantic primary caregiver, of course, is where it's modeled. Men and women? Men and women. All okay. humans are yep. constantly surveying to say, will you be here for me if I need you? Mm. Am I safe to be myself? Like one of the greatest predictors of a high performing corporate culture is psychological safety. Mm-hmm. You know, so all human systems require that. But if you think about it, a lot of our human systems actually don't celebrate that. Like most cultures, religious, cultural, they all sort of overlay, right? Sure. Uh, families, they, they have certain ways of being, values that they celebrate. And if your internal compass says this actually doesn't align, well, in order to survive, you're likely to silence that part of you. In your family too, like you look, most people take on a role in their family to keep the system going. Yeah. You know, you have an alcoholic parent, an angry parent, someone even who's sick, like your role comes to sort of make that system have Character stasis. Yeah. 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 So like Gabor Mate talks about how most of what we call personality is actually just adaptive strategies. Yeah. You know, like I'm a perfectionist or I'm a gregarious. 
like they're all ways. I'm the savior, I'm the healer, I'm the person that you cope to, I'm the person that, I'm the crybaby, I'm this. Right. I'm the broken one, I'm the one who fucks up everything. Right. You know? And so we bring these childhood roles into our adult experience, but like the, so I would say one, I think for me personally, but I think people should find people who love like they do. Like, don't try to be polyamorous with someone who's monogamous. Don't try to be monogamous with someone, you know, like, sure. Stop trying to get other people to fit into the box that you want to create. I think that you should create what you want to create. You know, like in polyamorous relationships, there must be great communication. And there's lots of different um, frameworks for non-monogamy. But trust and communication is essential. You know, when someone says to me, like, is one better than the other? I'm like, whatever is in service to you is what is good. It's just do it with integrity. Right. You know, but I do think that primary relating offers a really it offers the container to go deep and deep and deep and like to heal your stuff and to go into places of intimacy and exploration that's um i think beyond i think often not always true but i think often we can use open relationships as a way of um distracting from a primary focus like almost like a parachute yeah you know not always true but can be true yeah, I, I see the, the truth in that, absolutely. Um, when conflict arises in relationships, what's the best way to handle that? Well, to explore your role in it. Yeah. You know, I think, again, the ways that we interact in conflict are usually inherited ways that we observed. Okay. Right? So, so from our parents, yeah. TV, all the stuff. All that stuff. And yeah. like whoever taught us how to have healthy disagreement. You know, even when you watch parents have conflict, usually you see the fight in front of you, but then the repair is usually done not in front of the kids. So they don't often learn repair, if there is repair. Yeah. You know, so... They just see the front end. They're not understanding all the bits and pieces and the dynamics that establish it into a balanced, cohesive state. Yeah. It's like, pop, 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 pop. They see that, but they don't see... I'm so sorry. I can't believe I spoke to you that way. And right. I really hear your point. You know, one of the greatest predictors awesome. of relational outcome, which is from the research of the Gottmans, but this would be true of anyone looking at it, uh, is is the ability to repair, is the ability to to not, you know, to say, I'm not going to leave my partner in pain. You know, Stan Tacken, who's a world-famous psychologist, he talks about how the greatest reason for relational endings, relational failure is a failure to create agreements at the beginning. Wow. And think about that. Like, I'm thinking like my first relationship, I never thought about agreements. I was not like, hey, let's sit down and get clear. Like, what do you want to create? Who do you want to be? Who do I want to be? Is this container going to facilitate that? We, you know, we do that in every business decision. Every agreement is a contract, mm-hmm. right? Failing the plan is planning to fail. Why are we doing that in our personal love relationships? It makes sense too. Why aren't we being strategic? We think it just needs to be this fairy tale and it's got to be done organically. I think the communication has to be there from the jump start on what our expectations are, what we're willing to put up with, what we're looking for, what we need to receive, and the authenticity that needs to be shared. And I think that's really important is to have those agreements. Right. So what, what does that look like? I mean, you, you sit down with your, 
your your possible partner you've been dating for a few months you've been you maybe you met a couple weeks ago maybe you've been you've been together for two three years you can reevaluate sit down and really discuss pen pen and paper these are these are my requirements these are my policies how how do we do this yeah so you were asking earlier like if you're already in a relationship and now you're starting to think about relating like actually starting to think about agreements and is this really what i want maybe you got married at 22 and now you're 45 yeah you know a lot of people wake up later on in their life and go i forgot about myself like i forgot i don't want this relationship the way it is it doesn't my my values aren't feeling like they're embodied and i'm done with the bullshit like i'm done pretending so in already established relationships when i was saying earlier there has to be a commitment to the truth we feel disconnected things aren't good sometimes you don't keep your word you lie i lie right like but I'm not happy with how you do this. I'm not happy with my disconnection from myself. I have dreams and passions that I want to live. I want this relationship, if it can hold it, to give birth to those things and to give birth to what you want to do. You know, as as individuals, it's easy because you go, okay, what do I want to do? Who do I want to be? What kind of relationship am I committed personally to creating? Yeah. And then I'm going to do that. And when I start dating someone, I'm going to ask questions like, what is relationship to you? What do you want to create? What kind of dreams do you have personally and as a couple? When you're in a relationship and you've never had those conversations, you have to be prepared that the conversation might end the relationship. Sure. It's going to get uncomfortable. Right. And yeah. most of us are used to shrinking to keep the relationship together. And I'm saying actually commit to telling the truth because that's ultimately it's like there's a come to Jesus conversation that all relationships generally need to have that hasn't been happening. And you make that actually just a habit of the relationship. Like one thing that some friends of mine do is they do, uh, her father's in, formerly in finance, so they would have an annual general meeting, that's what they called it, and they made it semi-annual. So twice a year, they would write out, that before they met for dinner, they go on a date, they'd write out personally what are their goals for the next six months, and then they'd go to dinner and they'd switch papers and they'd read out loud what was the goal. So they'd be like reading out loud their partner's goals for the next six months. And then over dinner, they would plan how their relationship could facilitate, which goals could be met, and how could the relationship help support that. I love that. I mean, isn't that so fucking great? Like, Why not get strategic with the most important part of your life, which is your partner? Right. Why, why are we not doing that? That's given me a lot of good ideas and I can feel that, you know, I'd, I'd be so much further in so many ways uh, in my relationship if I had gone with that strategy. I feel like, you know, we naturally organically have these discussions all the time, but by not putting it on paper and officializing it, it might not be caught up to speed at the rate and the efficiency as if we were to do it that way. And yeah. I, I see the I see the beauty in that, you know. Um, we, we're, we're in interesting times right now, right? Certainly true. Yeah. It's, uh, across the board in just about every sector, something's falling apart or something's expanding or contracting, um, every it's, it's, it's everywhere. And what do you think we're going to be doing over the next 10 years in terms of our approach to building stronger relationships and stronger bonds? Because the amount of media, the amount of interference, the amount of distraction, 
the the pornography, the sexual, all that stuff, which I'm not against all that stuff, but I'm just saying a lot of that is getting clouded in the real connection points between two people. What are yeah. how, how do we how do we handle all this? Do yeah, we, you know, you and I have talked about this a bit uh, separately, but also in our conversation that we did uh, on Instagram. Yeah, um, and I love your perspectives on it too. You know, I think. Technology has been pretty incredible into what it's brought into our lives. I mean, I met my partner on Instagram. I got to connect with people and build a business and meet friends, right? Like, sure. And, you know, I think like any tool, uh, when it ultimately these businesses, social media businesses, have turned into um, the businesses want to monetize. Yeah. And they make money from attention. The longer your eyes are on right. it, the longer, the more money they're going to get paid for their marketing services. Exactly. Yeah. So, of course, their motivation is not your mental health or your emotional health or your relational health. Their motivation is probably that you're either enraged or engulfed with uh, lust, perhaps, or whatever it is. So, because of that, that has really exploited human attention, right? Like, even as a creator on the platform, if all of a sudden you don't want to do pointy dancey videos and that kind of stuff, which is no offense if that's someone's bag. But if you don't want to do short reels or change the way that you create content, which formerly was valuable to people, you either get in line or you're done. Right. Right. And so I think what has happened in the last two to three years, but I think this is true politically in the United States and certainly around the world is that there's just been more division. And technology has amplified that, but it also has created echo chambers. So we feel more right than we ever have. Of course, because you can see the opposite. Yeah, and you don't get to see, again, you don't see modeled uh, disagreement. Like, you don't have anyone modeling how do you handle not agreeing. Mm. Because certainly that hasn't happened politically. That's not occurring in the way media presents uh, positions. Social media now censors any view that doesn't agree, which I think regardless of your political view or even informational view. or all that, yeah. Yeah, you can still see that there has been a bias because a lot of fact-checking, well, fact-checking is funded, but a lot of fact-checks are actually not, they were not true. You know, it's like this expert doesn't agree with this expert, so it's not true. Right. And that expert just happens to agree with pharmaceutical companies, so there's no bias there. Right. You know, so I think I say all that to to say that connection has really been the need for it, I think, has come more. More than ever, right? (laughs) So much more. So social engineering, psychological operation, psychological warfare, um, everything that we're seeing in media is playing its part to perfection, in my opinion, on creating instability. Yeah, agreed confusion, anger, resentment. And when you're in those states, and this is science, you will do anything to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Problem reaction solution is a tactic that's been used by politicos and military groups and countries and provinces for thousands of years. You create a problem, there is a reaction. Psychologically, you're scared. You'll take on any solution just as long to take away that pain and fear. This is happening on a daily basis. More than ever. More than ever. 
And, you know, I, I feel for a lot of the people out there, it's not a day goes by that I don't get, you know, someone on social media, man or woman, just asking for help, saying that they're, they're, they're drowning in pain and sorrow. Mm -hmm. They can't trust anyone. They're, you know, they're the black sheep of their family. Their past relationship destroyed them. They can't believe that they, they created life with this person. I mean, this is happening on it. It's like relentless now. Right. And, and, I, and I'm empathetically feeling for that. I guess, you know, what, what, do, you, what do we do? <laughs> How do we offer, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's embodiment, right? First and foremost, because we can sit there and give instruction plans all day long. You know, get in the sun on the rise, yeah. you know, get your butt up and, and find your career, find your path, become self-monetizing yourself, Create independence. Right. And then from there, move forward. You know, but it seems to me that there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to be able to do that. And I, I, I can see that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you feel that, right? Yeah, I mean, there are armies of, of uh, behavioral scientists creating all of this, yeah. right? Like, in a way, technology, if you are using technology unconsciously, you will be exploited because there are behavioral scientists who's literally there's armies of them whose whole job is to exploit your attention to monetize it to sell more stuff etc what you just said right there say it again because that's so important because i always talk about if you're eating food unconsciously if you're smoking camp uh, cannabis unconsciously anything you're doing unconsciously means you're not present right and you are missing the boat on what the experience is and when you were talking about social media and technologies, you're leaving yourself wide open. Wide open. And you're getting seated by consciousness, almost entities, if you will, not to get esoteric. But these are... Get esoteric, yeah. yeah okay, well, yeah, yeah. But it's real. You it know, is. These are psyop seeds that are being dropped into people's systems. Yeah, and I think to be mindful of that, you know, I think one thing... So I'm Canadian, and I think one thing that has occurred for me in the last two years is the awareness that wait, Canada is not what I thought it was, or the idea of it. Like, I never thought Canada would have vaccine passports and quarantine camps and all this, and, and a politician run on the platform of division. Like, yeah. a wedge issue that separated families. Like, some of my anger in the last two years has been the exploitation of fear and connection. Like, ultimately what's occurred, not just in Canada, but worldwide, is the desire for what they use is nudge tactics in a public health perception, right? But they use this, as you said, historically, these things have always occurred. Yeah. And there is an ethical line, because of course, when you want collective behavior change that is beneficial to the society, like recycling or something like that, of course, you, nudge tactics can be important, but there is an ethical line. And humans need to belong. That's just, we're wired for it, right? Like we talked earlier about, we're wired for attachment, and we're wired for belonging. But when our truth, like when our authenticity threatens attachment, attachment wins. Wow. Right? So we will, which basically means if you telling what is your truth or expressing yourself will cost you membership to a relationship, a group, you a family, it. a culture, yeah. you'd silence it. And yeah. then inflammation, hello, inflammatory process. And so anger and resentment. Rage, right? Rage, yeah. Then insert anxiety depression right yep. to depress to depress how you feel what you're what you want to say yeah so that for me the last just witnessing the exploitation of fear 
as you said, you know, problem uh, solution, right? Yeah. It's like reaction, sorry, solution. It's like that was really used. The need to belong, like do the right thing. All that was so manipulative. And when I look at how do you free yourself from this, well, you know, the word healing is correlated to wholeness, right? It's like to return to wholeness. And I think all of these experiences, everything we've been through, all the frictions, as I said earlier, in relationship, are inviting us to heal. They're inviting us to restore integrity with ourselves. To, like if you're someone who's afraid of being abandoned or rejected, you will likely date people and be in relationship with people that because of being left, you will leave your own self. You will not tell the truth. You will not express, but you will be pursuing the healing of that in relationship. Constantly, like just a loop. With friends, with anyone who triggers you. Would you consider this someone's shadow? Yeah, I mean, undealt with, unprocessed um, material, you know? And it is, it's, it's medicine, really. It ultimately is medicine, much like when you have a red flag come up in your body, you're being invited to heal. You're being invited to pay attention to something that maybe you inherited the ability to ignore. You know, maybe the way that you handle conflicts, like we talked earlier, how do, how do you begin to do that in a way that is productive and constructive? Well, most of us in conflict, we have reactions. And those reactions, like, you know, in the research, there's four that the Gottmans talk about. They call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's criticism, contempt, uh, stonewalling. And um, criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. In that order? Uh, it doesn't matter. They all, we're, we'll all use different versions of that. Okay. We'll, we'll all, they pair together very nicely, like criticism and defensiveness. Sure. And those behavior patterns in conflict are ultimately the upper limits we, we meet. You know, if you say something to me and you're giving me feedback, but I have very delicate self-worth, I'll take it as criticism. Maybe you structured it in a way that I, I get defensive, I get reactive, I shut down. Our conversation is over. But if I can learn how to hear you and say, you know what, there's actually some truth in what you're saying, then all of a sudden I can be in a, like, I'm a recovering defender, that's what I say. It's like, and when I learned the antidote to defensiveness is to say, I can see some truth in what you're saying. First off, I was with a friend who gave me some feedback and I got defensive. And she said to me, you're being defensive right now. And I was like, I can see some truth in what you're saying. It felt like I was eating my own fucking shoe. Sure. It was yeah, the worst. That's difficult. But I found myself in a conversation I'd never been in mm. because I stayed longer. I heard her and I heard her and there was truth in what she was saying. And all of a sudden I felt like a connection I'd not felt. And when we look at the things that we do in conflict, which are ultimately can be dysfunctional and, and the reason our relationships end, the reason, the reason we hit upper limits in them. When we look at that, there are all things that are trying to protect us from being hurt, yeah. but they're not constructive for connection and safety. Yeah. So when we can learn together, when a relationship says, hey, are we willing to grow together? 
are we willing to heal? Because like, I guarantee the thing you do that triggers my greatest sensitivity, I do something that triggers your greatest sensitivity. It's not a one-way street as much as we'd love yeah. to say. Yeah, you're always pushing my buttons. Right, and it's like, well, you know, I think of like in uh, relationships where someone's an addict and the other person's trying to heal them. The classic thing, you know, the joke in that world of like, let's say uh, AA, is that when the person quits drinking, <clears throat> one, there's a recognition that usually the other person is the kind of person that drives someone to drink, too. Sure. Trying to get them to fix everything. Coping, you know, coping, right. Yeah. Um, and then they, you know, their addiction on some level is the codependency to trying to get someone else to get better. 100%. They right? teach that in Al-Anon. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, we're, we're pretty, you know, as dynamic as we are, it's pretty basic in terms of the system yeah and it's all just patterns it's patterns right um you know shadow work is something that you know i've been involved with for the last 15 years you know Mm -hmm. i've I've gone through you know i've 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 done the deep medicine work and um i looked at the inherent consciousness of a lot of people my age and friends and family and you can kind of look through them and you could just see their trauma it's like they're wearing it as a badge of honor. Yeah. And um, I tend to now look at people as children, you know, not in an insulting way. Yeah. But when I see their anger and frustration, some of the similar themes that are constant in their lives, instead of me becoming reactive to them, I see them as, as a child. And beautiful. Um, I'm doing that with myself too. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful. I had to because there was moments where I was, I was a raging maniac. You know, <laughs> I was a hothead. And the whole time, it had nothing to do with the guy that cut me off on the street. It had to do with something way deeper, you know? Yeah, I get that. And um, for me, you know, I, 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 I want whoever's listening to this to have the awareness that what you have been dealing with your entire life doesn't have to be you moving forward. Right. You know, and I don't want that to sound cliche and hallmark but it's the truth and there are steps and there are disciplinary acts that we can take to our everyday life to get out of this hole. Absolutely. Have you created like fundamental steps for an individual and for partnerships to be able to look under the rug and see how we can make some adjustments here and start creating momentum towards a healthier, happier relationship? Yeah. I mean, you know, what you were saying about being stunted or, you know, looking at everyone like a child, but also the willing to look at ourselves like that, like the way we react, we have to have compassion, you know, and I think we often, especially in relationship, we often mistake compassion for tolerance. Like, I don't want to be compassionate because if I'm compassionate, then I, I, that behavior doesn't have to change. Right. But it's like, no, compassion comes with a standard too, right? Like I can have compassion for where if you had defensiveness, I can have compassion for where it came from, but I'm not going to tolerate the same relational patterns from us and from you. Yeah. Right. So I hold you to a different standard. So, um, I think the pathway is similar, whether you're alone or in a relationship. And that is, are you willing to audit your life and tell the truth? Because if you can't tell the truth of who you're currently being and what you're currently choosing. And, you know, we talked a bit earlier about, uh, different ways that we have of disconnecting from ourselves. You know, I think the source of all addictions, uh, one, trauma, right, pain, 
but at the end of the day is is ultimately the space between who we actually are and what our soul is calling from us and who we're being you know if you're not in an integrity with your values you're going to have spaces that need to be numbed and that's also ultimately what addictions do you know Gabor Mate again like addiction specialist says the wrong question is why the addiction the right question is why the pain and so I think the first step for everybody is to be able to tell the truth yeah. about who they are, what they're choosing, and what ultimately do they want to create with their life. Like if you, you know, I'll ask someone, what do you want? What do you need? And if they came from a childhood where they didn't have space for their needs, they didn't develop access to being able to, no one ever asked them, what do you want? They'll say, I don't know. And I'm like, you're not allowed to say, I don't know. Like, again, that's a, a disconnection. Or what do you think they are? I'm like, stop trying to subcontract authority. Mm. Like, you are the authority. Choose something. If it doesn't feel good, just choose something else. But practice choosing. They say the opposite of trauma is choice. So one of those small practices to begin to reorient or to orient to a different way of being is to keep small promises, is to, like, make your bed every day. It seems so small. Patterns. Exactly. Yeah. And then you say, oh, I follow through. Because ultimately what we're always so we're doing trying to find trust with ourselves, right? Exactly. As yeah. I'm always saying, do I have my back? Yeah. Like when it comes to your values or your needs bumping up against my values and my needs, a relationship learns how to meet both if it's possible. But most people in a relationship sell out themselves for connection. Or they sell out connection for themselves. They're overtly individuated or a doormat. Right. Right? But not this like... Good relating says, is there space for me and space for you? And I don't, if I value myself and my needs and I have habits and rituals that say I care about myself, I'm not going to want you to not care about yourself. It would be almost impossible at that point. Right. Because yeah. I know the value of it. That's right. Like if you express a boundary to me, to be on the receiving end of a boundary can be challenging. Mm -hmm. But I'll also be like, I love you so much that you expressed what you need from me. Mm -hmm. And like now you start to see that um, that healing path, which I ultimately think is, again, telling, getting real with like an audit of your life, what you're choosing, what's in alignment, what's not. Like if you write out your values and you just go through your habits and your relationships, are they in alignment? Or are they not? Yeah. What would move them into alignment? Like what would you need to change? And can they? And what needs to go? If people have good boundaries, they'll have a good life. Like if they have boundaries, which ultimately I see boundaries as being a circle that you draw around who you are, your values. If you create a life where you have boundaries that honor your values and your life honors your values, you'll be healthy. Like you'll have a good life. Yeah. And you have to be willing to lose relationships, which ultimately, like I'm sure you've experienced this too. You like invite something different from a relationship and then the other person maybe reacts and says, I'm not going to talk to you anymore or this doesn't feel good for me anymore. And then years later, they come back like, oh yeah, I didn't get it then. And I get it now. And I've done that, gone back and said, I didn't get it. Yeah. And now I get it. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. Yeah. I, I appreciate the conversation. I'm having a lot of inner reflections as we go through the nuances of self-discovery and practicing discernment with self. Mm-hmm and the self audit and almost reconciling, you know, and, and a really clear level of just brutal honesty with self, you know, yeah. as, as scary as that is to. sometimes you have to, or else you're living a false identity. 
Well, the truth is always there. Yeah, the truth's always there. And if you're not in that, you're you're self-loathing. And when you're in that false identity, you're reaching for things that aren't good for you. And you're constantly getting caught up in that that whole rigmarole. You're just doing the same thing over and over. And you hate yourself. And you're going to hate everyone else around you. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Especially poisons the well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, like if you're resentful, anytime resentment is present, it's 100% of the time a reflection that you're not prioritizing something that's important to you, yeah. including yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I think one thing that I've learned in the last two years that has been a real growth opportunity for me was that, you know, I thought if I was angry and I could express what I'm seeing or exploring through anger, people would listen because I'm impassioned by it. I'm, but you know, I saw that, you know, my partner said to me, like, no one's going to listen to you when you're dysregulated. Like, you film these videos and you're, like, dysregulated. She's like, all it does is create more division. Mm. And I was like, fuck. You know, yeah. like, and so... Just, I, just on a biological level. Right. Right? There's a frequency to that. Some people trigger. Some people will listen. Some people will just shut them down. Right. Just because, you know, their, their defenses are getting violated. Right? Yeah. I, I, I find that, you know, because I'm a, I'm a lion. You know, you Me have a line on your hat. I just want to growl and Me too. scream at the top of my lungs because I give a fuck. I care. Right. You know, I, I can't just stand by. And I've noticed that I have, I've had to tame that line a little bit just so people can receive it. Right, because they don't hear it otherwise, especially if people are super sensitive to heightened, dysregulated nervous systems, which most people are because most people are dysregulated. That's right. You know? Yeah, that's why we do a lot of heavy metal cleansing and... We rebuild the gut and we emphasize getting in the sun and moving your body and finding harmony. I think all these things. That's all part of the parts. healing, you know, like I was talking about the individual stuff that you do on a psychological somatic level. Somatic therapy is really good. But like you're saying, it can't be separate from nutrition because like it's nourishment, but it's nourishment on every level. Right. Like you go sit with the tree, you'll get a lot more sometimes than sitting with the therapist. And sometimes you'll sit with a therapist and you'll get more than the tree. But it's not a, a either or, it's a both and. Well, I think one of the things that has been pretty apparent, we talked a bit about it earlier, is that there hasn't been space for discussion. You know, ultimately, you know, if, if you're talking about one of the most sensitive, like any of these sensitive subjects that we're talking about, whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether it's, you know, vaccines, whether it's COVID, whether it's medicine, whatever it is. Uh, if you are wanting to discuss it or dialogue about it, what has instantly, or criticize it, an aspect of it, what has happened is we've said, then you're anti it. Yeah. And that creates this really, uh, I mean, it creates a false binary because it's not either or, you know, even the subject of like pro-life versus pro-choice. Like when you actually get into the nuances of all of these, what we see as like you're either pro or against, there's actually a, a sea of oh, complexity. Yeah, this is the, that's the black and white game. I'm absolutely. Right. Yeah. And that's the world we've kind of created. And I'd say from a unconscious or conscious perspective, the reason that has happened is because there is no discussion then. And what's happened too is, and I'd say this is more, like I'm not partisan, but I'd say this is more what we would call the left now is that it would say, 
any discussion of it is you're not a good person then. You don't support people's individual choice, individual expression, which I think is really fascinating because like- it's very dangerous too. It's super dangerous yeah. because humans don't fit in boxes. Yeah. And when we try to one, put people in boxes, we, we dehumanize them. Yeah. And then we become the kind of people who put people in boxes. So when we uh, take someone and we, we shrink them to, well, if you believe this, then you must also be left or right or this or that. What we're trying to do is organize the world. We're trying to make it more predictable. We're trying to do that psychologically to experience the facade of safety. It's not real. Actually, if I would say, if anything, it's created a lot of sensitivity to any, like one, we now are in this other box. And now we, usually what humans do then is we double down on, like if there's any, if I don't allow any criticism of my perspective, then that means that my perspective is fragile. That's right. And even though I might say like, no, I'm, I'm super flexible in having conversations about these things. We know that hasn't been evident. So I think the restoration or the expansion of humanity, relationships, consciousness, the experience as humans is actually learning how to build bridges between these things. You know, cancel culture has created an environment that says, if you talk about any of these things, you might lose everything, your life, your belonging again, yeah. right? Yeah. But what it's de done is then people are afraid to have conversations, not dissimilar to even the conversation we're having, Right. that we might say the wrong word. Right. But if you and I don't have this conversation, then we are participating in cancel culture. That's right. Even if it's just because we're afraid. And so we don't say anything. Well, the absence of saying anything is again, Participating. Exactly. Yeah. So we have to be brave and courageous to stand in what is true for us. Like when you start to see anonymous polls about how people feel, very much what happens is, is you see that what they're presenting as feeling to belong to their community is actually different than how they feel. And it usually takes to a place of such ridiculousness, yeah. like which has happened. Yeah. You know, and we've gotten to those edges about COVID, vaccines, gender. You know, all these things that, look, I'm the first, like I have trans friends. I want everybody to feel love for who they are. And I think there's conversations to be had about, should we be putting kids on puberty blockers? There's no long-term data on this. And to just say it's safe and effective, we already know <coughs> how that uh, tag that marketing line is yeah. going, Yeah. right? Which is the history of humanity is to just, it's good. It's for your own good. It's for... I mean, that's the story of every tyrant. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. All right. So we've gone through a whole kaleidoscope of different emotions, <laughs> yeah, ideas, have. concepts. I can have this conversation for days and we'll continue to do this in other applications. I can't wait to jump onto your pod. Um, last thing I want to speak to you personally is, you know, sometimes I, I get claustrophobic in relationships mm -hmm. and I feel like I just want to be free yeah and I don't even know what free means and I don't know if it means I just want to be able to do whatever I want and explore however I want yeah and be able to you know go anywhere I want in the world without telling anyone it's just it's it's part of my human design it's part of my astrological sign I'm a Sagittarius my birthday is actually tomorrow I uh, yeah happy pre-birthday thank you so much and um I, you know I get into these head spaces when ultimately I've always realized at the end of the day I'm free right you know and, right. and a lot of people are feeling the same way 
as me. They're feeling trapped in, in certain things. Yeah, absolutely. And they're trapped in their job. They're trapped in their friendships. They're trapped in their, with their family. They're trapped in relationships. What do, you, what, do you, what do we do in these situations? Well, I remember my partner using, because I don't like, like rules and structure and schedules and all that kind of stuff. And she taught me the saying that there's also liberation through limitation. Mm. And in a way that you get to channel your energy towards something, you know, like towards, let's say, relational liberation. Um, there's probably a few layers to this. The one I'd say is that usually people who are afraid of being trapped in relationship felt smothered or overwhelmed by parent or parents or culture, right? It could be a lot of things. And so what happens is, is there's a fear of the term they use is engulfment. And it can also be that and or that as a kid, we felt the need to take care of a parent or both parents, or we had to oscillate around the reactivity of a parent, like their emotions, their needs. We might have had a codependent parent who talked to us like a best friend to like share their feelings with us. And so um, also in that too is we could have had a parent who had a chronic illness or a sibling. And so everything was about them, not us. Right. So usually how people respond can be two ways. One, they maintain that pattern. And as adults, they're caretakers, right? So, and then the other one is to separate from. Remember how I said that most people in a relationship either lose themselves at the cost of, so the relationship is maintained at the cost Survival. of self, yeah. right? But there's also the other side, which is relationships is the cost and self is maintained. Boom. Right. So there's a fear of losing oneself, especially if we've lost ourselves in a relationship, especially as children, but it can happen as adults. So we're afraid unconsciously, generally, that if I'm in relationship with you and you have needs, I'm going to lose my individuation and identity. Most relationships are actually modeled for loss of self-identity. Sure, the blending right? of them. Exactly. Right. Like think so of, this is an ego thing, right? It's, it's, it's like an attachment survival thing. Right. You know, we could call it ego too. Yeah. You know, because it can also be the feeling we get when we're hitting the upper limit of our capacity for intimacy. So as soon as I'm hitting that upper limit, the closeness, I'm feeling that love, it's like right before previously the template, it's almost like PTSD, right? The template that I unconsciously know is this is right where I lost individuation or self. Right. It can happen as a baby, right? So yeah. even a lot of the feelings you have in that can be, there cannot be language because it was pre-verbal. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Yeah, so I'd say that one is being able to learn where can I negotiate and let people in and where do I actually lose myself and how do I talk to my partner or the world, whoever I'm in relationship with about the impact that has on them to get some context. And then also how can they support me in, cause really what you're doing is you're expanding the capacity of your nervous system to co-regulate. So remember, I was Flexibility. talking exactly, right. and you know, it's like cold water exposure can broaden that. Yeah, but it's very different when you're in the relating model. So when you think about it, what I'm talking about from an attachment perspective, if we're using language of attachment theory, is that anxiously attached people pursue and cost the the 
that cost themselves for the relationship. Avoidantly attached people create distance. One's afraid of there being any space and the other one's afraid that there is no space. From a nervous system perspective, anxiously attached people don't know how to self-regulate. They don't know how to sit with their own feelings. They don't know how to stay in them. So they go, they text, they pursue, they try to connect because they balance their own emotion through connecting with someone. Someone who's avoidant or that space of like fear of being engulfed, they don't know how to co, they don't trust co-regulation. And so if you think about it on a biological level, that actually makes it a little easier to understand, which is not to negate if we were getting into like masculine and feminine, the masculine's need for liberation and freedom. But sometimes that, uh, and the woman's, or the feminine, sorry, need for safety, security, and all that kind of stuff. Again, we tend to genderize these things, but we all, depending on if someone's been exposed to this language, it's like we all have both. That's right. Right. It's generalized, but yes. Yeah, and so that need for liberation is, how do you actually celebrate that in the container of relationship? Aha. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, uh, that's the nirvana or the, or the absolution is how can we yeah. get to that point and actually celebrate that with, two new, with your partner? Yeah. And I would say that, you know, there's this great line from uh, Jordan Peterson, and I'm sure people have lots of opinions on Jordan Peterson, but I've loved this line, which is commitment only works if you do it. And I think like when we consider relationship from a place of, there is actually no out. If there was no out, which is true of, let's say life and other aspects, which we might do in business, how might we orient to commitment and relationship? Like, would I be willing to use the technologies? And I don't just mean like technology, but the technologies of Tantra, the technologies of to figure communication, it out. To figure it out, not just to figure it out, to but, perfect to, it. but to liberate. Right. Right. Eric Fromm wrote this book called The Art of Loving. He's, a, I believe, a psychotherapist or a psychologist. And he says, there's nothing that humans fail at more than love and don't bother to learn. Like if you were wanting to become a surgeon, you'd learn pathology and all the things yeah. and the skill set. But with love, we just kind of think we know, which I think evidence is pretty clear that we don't. Mm. But the technologies and the skills are available to everybody. You know, when we think about fate, like, oh, good relationships just come to people. They're just lucky. No. You create it. It's a skill set. And if you believe it's just fate, then, you you know, I I think fate doesn't work for you unless you do. Right. Right? I think that was a, a very explosive and very powerful perspective. And that is something that... I think everyone listening is going to be able to take away from is that relationships take work and and we all know that there's, there's a system that needs to be put into place. And, um, I think we can end on this as my, uh, my business partner and CEO, he's, he's been in a 21 year marriage and these two are, are lovebirds every single day and they have two days a week where no children are around. And they just sit down and they talk about things that have been bothering them. Shit, my partner's going to want to do this now. I can already <laughs> tell. I'm like, she'll be like, we got two days a week. Two days a week. And, and um, I, I, I love that. You know, it's I, beautiful. I honor that. And um, it puts some perspective into my life. 
And uh, it was literally the opposite of what my parents did, you know, growing right. up. And um, they, they suppressed everything. There's yeah. rage, anger, suppression. Let's not talk about Avoid it. Avoid each other. Avoid each other. Um, next shiny thing, you know. Right. And um, th these are, you know, these are things that are built within us on an epigenetic level. And we yeah. express it in all walks of life. And um, a lot of unlearning and unwinding um, my road has been over the last 10 years. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to see and to witness and to know that we can evolve with it and we don't have to be a victim of it anymore. And we can really show up for people and show up in partnerships, whether it's the love of your life or your best friend. I, right. think, I think this crosses into every area. It doesn't just have to be a romantic relationship. It could be anything. Agreed. Yeah. And you know, any relational friction you have, no matter anything that's not you, you're in relationship with. That's right. And, you know, we talked earlier about the ways we distract. Like you ultimately have to get sober from everything that pulls you away from who you are and what feelings you're trying to avoid. Because the emotion, you know, think of the word emotion to evoke motion. Emotions are brilliant. We code them as bad or good or negative or positive. They just are. They're just pieces of information. Right. And they're brilliant. Like ultimately your rage can serve the world. Your grief can serve yourself and the world. Think about the most transformative moments in human history. Yeah. They're born from usually rage. Yeah, rage, right. adversity, and anger. That's right. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming over. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. It's uh, the lion is here. Fellow lion, wake the fake up. Mark. Let's do this again very mm. soon. And I love that. Let's do something cool together. Let's maybe do a, a love retreat together. Oh, that'd be epic like, where they nutritionally, in every aspect of nutrition, yep. uh, embed themselves. I think that's brilliant. Yep. Appreciate you being here, bro. Thanks for having me. I appreciate right. you.